Frank Little of the Train to Butte, his mission agitate. A fire in the copper mine claimed a hundred sixty-eight. Here's a story you probably haven't heard before. A little more than a hundred years ago, in an out-of-the-way mining town in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, a man got murdered in the dead of night. That man's name was Frank Little, and the town where he was killed was Butte, Montana. Back in the day, Frank Little was kind of an important guy, and Butte was an important place. Little was a union organizer who traveled all over the West fighting for the rights of workers. He'd come to the working-class stronghold of Butte during a bitter strike to help organize the city's downtrodden copper miners. And then, in a brutal explosion of violence that made newspaper headlines all over the country, he was killed. They could not buy him with their dollars As one who would betray He would not wear a copper collar Was the promise The promise that he made Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. 106 years ago, on August 1st, 1917, after organizing a strike of metal miners against the Anaconda Company, wobbly organizer Frank Little was dragged by six masked men from his Butte, Montana hotel room and hung from the Milwaukee Railroad trestle. Our story today comes from the Death in the West podcast, which devoted its entire first season to examining Frank Little's legacy a century after his death. Check out the podcast at deathinthewestpod.com or search for Death in the West wherever you listen to podcasts. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1970. That was the day the United Farm Workers, led by Cesar Chavez, signed their first union contract in California. It was a milestone victory for agricultural workers. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. As one who would betray, he would not wear a cup of color. Was the promise, the promise he On this podcast, we're going to dig deep into Frank Little's unsolved murder, tracing the threads from the night of his death all the way up to the way we still live and work in America today. A word of warning, though. This story involves some graphic language and depictions of violence that might be troubling to some listeners. So who was Frank Little? Who killed him? And how did his life and death become a secret pivot point in the American story? That's what we aim to find out, starting right now. Here's how the story of Frank Little always begins. Three o'clock in the morning, August 1st, 1917. A black Cadillac creeps out of a barn on the south side of Butte, Montana. The car heads north, its privacy curtains shut tight. Its motor can be heard for blocks as it moves up Butte Hill headed toward the copper mines that dot the rough landscape north of town. The Cadillac pulls up outside a boarding house at 316 North Wyoming Street. A half dozen men pile out. 
They all wear dark clothing, hats, and masks. One man stays on the sidewalk. The other five enter the building. They wake up Nora Byrne, the boarding house owner. One man pulls a gun. Someone claims to be quote-unquote officers and says they've come for a man named Frank Little. Next, the gang smashes the door to room 32. They find Little asleep, wearing only his underwear. Frank Little is a union organizer, a member of the radical Industrial Workers of the World. He's been in Butte for just two weeks, but in that short time, he's made some formidable enemies. A slight 39-year-old man, Little is already hobbled by a broken ankle. One of his legs is wrapped in a cast. His crutches lean against the wall. The men rush him, gag him with a towel, and drag him out of the building. On the sidewalk, there's a brief struggle before they stuff Little into the back of the waiting car. The Cadillac takes off northbound, passing by the O'Brien Saloon on the corner of Wyoming and Copper Street, where witnesses watch as the car disappears into the dark. At some point, the men stop the car. The gang ties Frank Little to the Cadillac's back bumper and drags him through the streets of Butte. Little's kneecaps are ripped off his legs. The gang takes Little to a deserted railroad trestle on the outskirts of Butte. There, they hang him, leaving his dead body dangling in the night. The killers will never be caught. No one ever stands trial. No one ever goes to prison. And that's pretty much where the story that everyone tells ends. It's a fairly well-known tale in Montana, at least the basics. If you go beyond that, though, Frank Little's story starts to splinter, starts to break into pieces, starts to become a bunch of different parallel stories. Stories that stretch back in time to long before that night in August, and stories that are still unfolding now, more than 100 years later. Some of those stories are about huge national forces this crime helped unleash, like an unprecedented crackdown on civil rights and free speech and a sea change in the American labor movement and progressive politics. Some of the stories are smaller and more intimate. What happens to an ordinary family when its most famous member becomes a martyr? How does a city move on when its most notorious incident is an unsolved crime? Most of all, this death left behind questions. Who is Frank Little? Who wanted him dead? And what can his murder tell us about our world today? I'm Zach Dundas, and this is Death in the West. Episode 1, 3777.
Now, there isn't much more I can say excepting this. One of the most stalwart men I ever met and could call a friend was Frank Bliffle, who was left dangling at the end of a rope in Butte, Montana, after they strike there on Anaconda Hill. This is Ralph Chaplin, a legendary union leader, talking about Frank Little in 1960. Pioneering work, clearing the ground for a stable union of miners. I'm not saying this to build up those people. Only this, that when you look at a TV set, when you get into your car with uh, high fins back of it, when you sit down and look at your wife and your family across the table, just remember that the history of your union ties in with the history of all the work those people did. Now, maybe you've never heard about Frank Little, but for some people, his name lives on to this day. During that summer of 1917, Little came to Butte to whip up support for a union called the Industrial Workers of the World. Workers in Butte's vast copper mines had walked off the job in a bitter strike for better pay and safer conditions. But the strike's leadership was chaotic, and the IWW was angling for influence over Butte's thousands of workers. And here's something you've got to understand. The copper mines of Butte were monumental, unlike anything in the world at that time. And in 1917, the world's growing electrical networks ran on Butte Copper. At that moment, Butte Copper was literally powering the world. The city's mines had made some of the wealthiest men in America. And Butte, which sits on a remote hillside in the Rocky Mountains, had become a full-fledged industrial city, attracting workers from all over the globe. Butte's mines had also built the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, at that time one of the most powerful corporations in America. So, in the summer of 1917, Butte was a powder keg. America had just entered World War I. Copper was vital to the military effort. You can't fight a modern war without shell casings and electricity. But in June, a terrible mining disaster triggered the strike. And by July, the mines were all but shut down. The strike threatened not only the war effort, but the immense profits of the Anaconda Company. The atmosphere in Butte was chaotic and sinister. Copper Company detectives spied on labor leaders. Nationalists hassled opponents of the war. Meanwhile, ethnic and political rivalries divided the union movement. At the height of this crisis, Frank Little showed up and delivered a series of hell-raising speeches at labor rallies in front of thousands of spectators. Little's speeches disturbed city leaders, the police, the press, and the Anaconda Company, which dominated Butte and Montana politics. And then, somebody killed him. But, okay, a guy shows up in a remote western mining town, he makes some speeches, causes some trouble, and then he gets killed. Why do we care more than 100 years later? Four of us worked together on this show, and we've been thinking about that a lot. My brother Chad is a journalist and a novelist. Our friends Leif and Erica Fredrickson, yep, they're siblings too, are a historian and a journalist, respectively. 
We all grew up in Montana, and we all have family roots that trace back to Butte. We've been hearing about Frank Little pretty much all our lives, and we can all have a tendency to obsess over this kind of stuff. But when we started digging deeper, we discovered that there was a lot that we didn't know. Characters and clues, conspiracy theories, amateur historians who think they solved the case. And then there's Butte itself, a fascinating, intense, kind of crazy place, then and now. But most of all, we discovered that Frank Little's killing is just one part of a larger, much darker chain of events. A violent class struggle across the West, almost a slow-motion civil war. This crime is connected, directly or indirectly, to a whole bunch of other crimes and violent episodes, a crucial time in the history of the American West that almost never gets discussed. How is that story relevant today? Well, as we talked to historians and dug in the archives, that was a question we kept asking. And we got some answers that were both enlightening and disturbing. Here's historian Arnon Gutfeld talking to us from his home in Israel. Franklin was not an isolated incident. It was part of a trauma that swept the nation, and it uh, shows what can happen in the democracy when it goes haywire, when it goes crazy. Democracy gone haywire. For reasons that are probably pretty obvious in 2020 America, that phrase kept coming back to haunt us. The Frank Little case helped show the roots of some of today's divisions and struggles way back, at a moment when America is grappling with waves of unrest and legacies of unjust violence and political oppression, it's a cautionary tale of some ugly places they might lead. We gathered audio from a bunch of different sources, interviews and visits to Butte, old archives where you can find the voices of people who remember 1917 firsthand. The sound quality varies, but it adds up to a portrait of a lost era and an unsolved crime. Who sent those men in the black Cadillac? Who benefited from this murder? How did they keep it all a secret? And all this time after Frank Little was killed in Butte, how close can we get to the truth? Hey everybody, this is Chad Dundas, Zach's brother and a co-producer for Death in the West. Right now, you're listening to old-time Butte musician John the Yank Harrington play his accordion for historian Gary Ward Stanton in 1979. You'll hear the Yank's recollections of Frank Little coming up in episode 2, but first, we wanted to tell you about some of the sponsors that made it possible for us to even make this season of the show in the first place. We had the generous support of Humanities Montana, a nonprofit organization promoting diverse storytelling, conversations about our state's most pressing issues, and Montana cultural institutions through grants and partnerships. We literally couldn't have done it without them. Ear Candy Music has been selling Missoula's best vinyl, CDs, and tapes since 1997, and wherever you are, or whatever genre of music you're looking for, we suggest you check out their online shop for all your listening needs. Find them at earcandymusic.biz. Big Dipper Ice Cream is a Montana institution serving up handcrafted ice cream since 1995. 
Big Dipper has been featured as one of America's best by publications like Food and Wine Magazine, USA Today, and Yahoo News. If you're in Montana, you can check for Big Dipper ice cream in stores or visit them in person at their shops in Missoula, Billings, and Helena. Find them on the web at BigDipperIceCream.com. We guarantee you won't regret it. If you want to help support our show and make it possible for us to do Season 2 of Death in the West, just go to our website, DeathInTheWestPod.com, and donate. There's a button there that will allow you to give directly to Death in the West. We would appreciate the support, and above all else, thanks for listening. It's one thing to read about Frank Little's murder a century later. It's another thing to spend time in the places where it happened. One afternoon, all four of us met up with Butte historian Dick Gibson right there at the corner of Copper and Wyoming, where Little was abducted by that team of assassins. Dick is a geologist by training. That's what brought him to Butte originally. But something about the city fascinated him. It happens to a lot of people who come here. I grew up in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> I tell people apparently I'm attracted to blue-collar towns down on their luck. Dick started researching Butte's history, and he discovered that a lot of that history converged on this one guy, Frank Little, and events that unfolded during the long, hot summer of 1917. The site of Nora Burns' boarding house is now a Motel 6. As we stood across the street talking to Dick, it was kind of a weird scene. About a half dozen people were milling around, smoking and talking, sort of like they were waiting for a bus. Right behind us, the Anaconda Road wound up out of town toward the Berkeley Pit, a huge open pit mine that started in the 1950s. This corner right here is the heart of our story. This is where it happened, right up there on the north side of the building there. That's about where the Finlander Hall stood, and he spoke in there several times. Where that parking lot is? Yeah, where the parking lot is. And just about where the uh, north arm of the motel is is where Mrs. Burns' boarding house was. Uh -huh. That's where he stayed, and that's where he was abducted on the night of August 1st. So um, this, this, to me, is the, the core of what we can talk about. This is where so many things happened. Let's talk about 1917 in Butte for a second. In April, the United States entered World War I, becoming allies with Britain, France, Italy, and others against Germany and Austria-Hungary. Across America, and definitely in Montana, patriotism surged, and so did xenophobia and nationalism. Immigrants from all over lived in Butte. But the dominant ethnic group by far was the Irish, and the Irish had major problems with the idea of America fighting alongside the UK. So the tensions just had to be rife and ready to explode. And I cannot imagine what that summer of 1917 would have been like. That spring, riots against the new military draft broke out. Federal troops occupied Butte to put down the unrest. And then in June, a horrific fire at a mine called Speculator killed more than 160 miners, still the worst hard rock mining disaster in American history. Often called the Granite Mountain Fire, the tragedy sent Butte over the edge. The Anaconda Company dominated the city, owning most of the mines. 
By 1917, it was one of the most powerful companies in America, hugely influential in state and national politics. Anaconda was headquartered just a couple blocks away from Frank Little's boarding house, on the sixth floor of the elegant Hennessy building. We can see it from where we're standing. To me, the, the sixth floor is a disparaging term um, <laughs> that was known really in industry across the country. Uh, it, it meant the Anaconda Company, and, and it was that sixth floor right there. The um, control that the company had over the state was pretty much unabridged. It was, it was, it was complete. Anaconda controlled dozens of key newspapers across the state and held sway over many of Montana's politicians. Butte's mines had once been strongly unionized, but the company had weakened workers' power. In fact, by 1917, there was no recognized miners' union at all. After the Granite Mountain fire, in a matter of days, a new union formed and the city's copper miners went out on strike. Workers in other industries walked out too. And by July, the city was basically paralyzed. Then Frank Little showed up. And who was Frank Little? By that point, he was known across the West as a speaker, leader, and all-around rebel. His union, the Industrial Workers of the World, favored a program so radical, even other elements of the labor movement found it threatening. The IWW wanted to abolish capitalism and replaced the government with a kind of huge anarchist cooperative run by workers. For years, Frank Little had traveled the West, organizing workers and helping lead strikes and protests. Today, he's recognized as one of the pioneers of civil disobedience and peaceful protest. He had done jail time in Montana and Washington for leading free speech protests. He'd organized farm workers in California's San Joaquin Valley and dock workers in Minnesota. And he paid a high price for his activism. Frank Little had been beaten up, arrested, thrown in prison, kidnapped, held at gunpoint, and been through at least one mock execution. By the time he got to Butte, he was one of the IWW's leaders and most famous speakers, and he wasn't about to back down. He's given speeches like, put the managers to work down in the hole in the ground, give them a muck stick, a shovel, and make them actually earn a living for a change. Well, that kind of talk goes over quite well with the miners, with the workers. The company? Not hardly, not really. He was probably the most famous union organizer that had been in Butte. There had been other things and other activities and other events, but he was famous, nationally famous. In Butte, Little spoke to huge crowds, moving beyond the strike itself to deliver a radical anti-war message. And that, more than anything, riled up Montana's company-controlled press. The newspapers, which were the mouthpiece of the, of the company, uh, focused on that because it was more politically expedient. He did call the soldiers fighting in Europe Uncle Sam's scabs in uniform. Frank Little was in Butte for about two weeks before he was killed, plenty of time to make powerful enemies. And he knew it. Well... You know, that night, when he was coming home from wherever he had been that, that afternoon and evening, and he passed somebody coming out of that saloon up there, and they warned him that they were out to get him, by all uh, reports, he laughed. Who was behind those threats? Well, there are some strong possibilities. The Anaconda Company, other local business bigwigs, nationalists fired up by the war, 
Butte's notoriously corrupt police department, maybe even rival labor leaders. But even with so many potential suspects, the official investigation into Frank's murder went basically nowhere. There were six men in that car. It seems incredible that no one ever talked. How do you think a secret like who the men were is kept a secret? That's one of our producers, Erica Fredrickson. Great question. Um, the, the, the easy answer to the question of how, how the secret of who killed him was kept would be that the company's control and their infiltration in the police department, if it was the police department that did some of the, um, were, were among the six uh, that abducted him, that that control was so absolute that they could. Now, having said that, I'd be astonished if there weren't tens, if not hundreds of people in Butte who absolutely knew for, for sure who it was in 1917. driving through downtown Butte and we are coming to the scene of Frank Little's abduction uh, now Motel 6 corner of Granite and Wyoming Street still a lodging place that's right yeah, there's a after we spend time with Dick Gibson producer Leif Fredrickson and I decide to take a little cruise to the streets of Butte we're trying to retrace the path of the kidnappers Cadillac all the way to the place where Frank Little died. The railroad trestle where Frank Little was hanged no longer exists. In fact, there's a lot of mythology and misinformation about the murder site. We have to hunt it down for ourselves to get a look at the scene of the crime. So one way or another, where they went down Wyoming or came up here, the Cadillac headed south and we were about to turn off. Today, Uptown Butte is the single largest national historic district in the country. The old brick buildings and vintage signs make you feel like you just stepped into a classic film noir detective movie. It can be quiet, though. A lot of those great buildings just sit there empty. The city's population today is less than half what it was in 1917, at the peak of the copper mining industry. As we head downhill from uptown, with the newer part of town, the flats, spread out to our left, reminders of Butte's past are all around us. Huge black iron head frames, also known as gallows frames, loom over the entrances to old copper mines. We pass block after block of old bars, shops, apartments, and offices. Leif thinks he knows the right general direction. So I looked on, there's these Sanborn maps, which are um, very detailed maps that were made by the Sanborn Insurance Company to figure out what buildings were made of and so on, so they could figure out what to charge people for insurance rates. But they're an they're enormous resource for uh, urban historians. Uh, and so This old that, map of Butte shows the city in building by building detail. Leif has identified the Milwaukee Railroad line, old unnamed roads, and other landmarks that were close to the scene of Little's death. We cross railroad tracks and make a turn down a road called Centennial, just like the Black Cadillac must have done, and very quickly find ourselves at the edge of town. 
A few industrial buildings are scattered around in foothills, meadows, and gullies. Almost no one is around. We pull over, and Leif pulls out his phone. Okay, so I need to pull up my uh, Sanborn map and my um, contemporary Google map to see where exactly we are going to head from here. Leif is actually holding a secret decoder ring right now. We find our way up into a network of dirt roads behind a modern-day concrete plant that looks like it's shut down for the day, near some railroad tracks. We think we're close. So here's the Sanborn map. And this, where I have it circled here in red, Zach, is where the, I believe, where the trestle was mm-hmm. that he was hung. And you can see there's this other Butte and Anaconda line that runs up north of it, which I think is That's that. That's gotta be that. Yeah. That one right there. Right. And then I think that the road we were just on, the one we're on right now, is where the Milwaukee road was. And we just we just came up here and turned and, and turned into here. Right, we may have just driven right so, through the scene of the crime. Right, right. So, um, I mean, I guess, should we get out and walk around? Yeah, or I think we should check it out. Okay. We have no idea whether we're on public land or private land, but usually in Montana, someone will tell you. We head uphill, past some oil tankers parked on the rail line that still exists. We follow a faint dirt road up to where the nearest houses stand, about a quarter mile uphill. I'm sure we don't look weird or suspicious (laughs) at all. Two dudes walking along, one's carrying a computer, the other one's got headphones on. The last residential street at the edge of this lonely expanse of fields, rails, and industrial ruins is called Alabama Street, exactly what Leif's map from 1916 shows. We head back to the spot we've identified as the former site of the railroad trestle. The trestle and the tracks it carried are gone, but enough of the geography is the same that we can envision how it all went down. We're standing in this kind of industrial wasteland at the edge of Butte. And it's a sort of wide open, dusty, weedy area, old roads crisscross back and forth. Uh, There's an existing rail line, which we have figured out is what was the Butte Anaconda and Pacific Railroad. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, And we think that where we're standing, we figured out where we're standing was the route of the old Milwaukee line. We can see the Milwaukee Passenger Depot maybe maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile away. So we believe that this is the scene, this is the site. Yeah, and the, so the road, we're, so we're looking, uh, you know, we're just a little ways away from the old railroad bed, and the road we're standing on is an old wagon road that was the route to work. It was a shortcut that this guy, Charles Holmes, would take every day. He lived on the south side of Butte, and he would walk north into town to, to go to his work. But on the morning of August 1st, 1917, just you know, in the early morning as the sun was coming up, it was super hot summer, hottest summer in decades in Butte um, in that year. As he approached the, the railroad trestle, the road that he walked on went under this railroad trestle, this Milwaukee railroad trestle. As he approached it, he saw a man hanging from it, hanging about five feet off the ground. And the man was bloody. Uh, he was wearing only his underwear and he was very clearly dead. He also saw, as he was 
circling around the body trying to just make sure that he was seeing what he thought he was seeing. Uh, he saw a note pinned to the body. It, he wasn't close enough to read it. And he would later say to reporters and to police that he assumed at the time that it was probably a suicide note, that maybe the guy had killed himself, maybe to avoid the draft. That was his, Charles's speculation at the time. But he wasn't close enough to read the note. After he sort of confirmed to his satisfaction that there was indeed a dead body hanging from the railroad trestle, he headed for his home. On the way, he encountered his neighbor, a man named Emmett Utter. Utter went back to his place, his boarding house, and told his landlord. The landlord called the police and told the police that he remembered hearing dogs barking at about four in the morning down in the direction of the trestle. So some sort of disturbance had happened in the middle of the night. And about the same time that Charles and Emmett are learning about this body hanging from the trestle, another guy named Robert Brown was driving nearby. He was hauling a load of gravestones to a nearby town of Rocker. And he saw this man hanging from the trestle and he pulled over and he called the police. The chief of police, Jerry Murphy, uh, immediately left the station and came here. He was brought with him a lieutenant, Mike Dwyer, a detective named Frank White, a patrol driver named Ralph Wynn, a chauffeur named Ed Kimball, and undertaker James Cassidy. So they brought a whole team out here. It seems like maybe they had uh, some sort of inkling that this was not just an ordinary run-of-the-mill crime scene. The man hanging from the bridge was Frank Little, the same man who'd been abducted from Nora Burns' rooming house a few hours earlier. And Chief Murphy ordered the rope cut down, and when De Detective White examined the body, he noted that it was still warm. They saw that the man had been beaten before he was killed. Cops noticed a gash behind his left ear as though he'd been struck by something heavy, maybe a pistol. And it was uh, clear that he, was in, he had been roughed up before he was murdered. The note that Charles Holmes had seen was written in red crayon on a six by 10 inch placard. And the message was, fa was fairly menacing, fairly straightforward. It said, others take notice, first and last warning. And then there were three numbers, which are widely known in Montana as the symbol of the vigilantes from pioneer days, the numbers 3777. It's a traditional warning, basically saying, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna clean up the town, we're gonna kill all the bad guys in town. And acro across the note were also a series of letters, later believed to stand for the names of some of the prominent leaders of the Butte strike. The first letter was an L, for little, presumably, and it had been circled as if to show that he was a problem that had been taken care of. Uh, the back of the note was smeared with blood. When you walk around the site and read the description of what happened that morning, you have to wonder. There were no direct witnesses, but plenty of people laid eyes on at least some aspect of the crime. The police were on the scene pretty quickly, and there was ample evidence. So the question remains, how did Frank Little's killing go unsolved? The mystery that still hangs over the crime makes the place we're standing feel, well, eerie. Yeah, I mean, it's weird to be here. I mean, I've been reading about the Frank Little case for most of my adult life, and only really, for all the times I've been to Butte, I've only really had a vague sense of where the crime actually took place. And it's just kind of strange to be here and see that while there have been major changes to the site, obviously the big industrial facilities are gone, the road network's probably a little bit different than it was then, one, one of the two rail lines is gone. At the same time, 
it it probably feels somewhat similar to how it did then. I mean, we're standing here on a really hot summer day. Uh, we're on the outskirts of town. There's really nobody around, uh, and and it's just really isolated and forlorn. It still feels like a place you might go to murder somebody, <laughs> yeah, and, it really, uh, it really like a does. place place you wouldn't want to be at night. I mean, it's not. It's not an inviting place at yeah, all. Yeah, it almost feels like a, the cliched setting for the ending of an action movie or something. There's like the, you know, the requisite abandoned factory, like old industrial equipment lying around. Um, Nothing else you would just impale yourself on some sort of <laughs> piece of metal or rebar that's like all, all over the place around here. By far the most famous piece of evidence in Frank Little's killing is that note that was pinned to his body. It's a creepy-looking document, with weirdly delicate, fancy curlicue writing, like someone was practicing their best penmanship with those cryptic numbers, 3777. Well, maybe not so cryptic. If you grow up in Montana, even today, you know those numbers pretty well. They're the legendary signature of the vigilantes. According to Big Sky Country lore, the vigilantes brought order to the lawless gold camps of the 1860s, before Montana became a state, by summarily hanging outlaws, bandits, and road agents. The real history is way more complicated and problematic, but the important thing here is the myth. The idea of righteous volunteers getting rid of bad elements to protect a vulnerable community on the lonely frontier, by any means necessary. The original vigilantes used 3777 as a warning and as a sort of a flex when they pulled off a job. Some say the numbers refer to the dimensions of a grave. No one's really sure. What is sure is that in 1917, almost everyone in Montana would have recognized what those numbers meant in the context of Frank Little's murder. They meant that whoever did it believed it was the right thing to do and that they were willing to do it again. As we started this project, we kept asking ourselves, why did Frank Little's killing end up going unsolved? There were witnesses, there was evidence. From early on, there were suspects. It's easy enough to say, well, the company, the all-powerful Anaconda Mining Syndicate, did him in to stop the strike, and then the company covered it up. But on the other hand, even if the company did it, how? And why would they single out Frank Little? He was radical, but he was far from the only threat to the company's power. In fact, in some eyes, assassinating Little made no sense at all for Anaconda. We talked to historian David Emmons, for example, and he, for one, has his doubts. I don't know who killed him, but I don't... The Anaconda Company was a lot of things, but stupid was never one of them. And this was, this was one of the dumbest things they could possibly have done. All we know right now, at the start of our journey, 
is that in the hot, turbulent summer of 1917, a man on a mission came to a remote city that had become a center of wealth and power. Why were the stakes so high? High enough to cost that man his life? What made control of Butte worth fighting for and killing for? That's coming up on Death in the West. I crush all the pretty things underneath my feet as I walk to work. I can't see the street through the waves of heat. And I don't worry none about those pretty things no more. Once inside Durham's gates, the outside is as dead as the fresh slaughter on the kiln floor. Death in the West is researched, written, recorded, and produced by Chad Dundas, Leif Fredrickson, Erica Fredrickson, and me, Zach Dundas. The show is made possible in part by the generous support of Humanities Montana. Our theme song is Cookie Cutter Man by the great Missoula, Montana band Butter. Original music in this episode is by Travis Yost. This song, right now, is Bleed by Bird's Mile Home, also from Missoula. You can find links to these songs and artists on our website, deathinthewestpod.com. We've also got historical and background material about Butte and the Frank Little murder case there. Follow us on Instagram at deathinthewestpod to see pictures of Butte and our reporting process. Are you from Butte? Do you have a hot tip for us about who you think killed Frank Little? Email us at tips at deathinthewestpod.com and we'll be in touch. Special thanks to Arnon Gutfeld, Dick Gibson, and David Emmons for their interviews. Thanks to Smithsonian Folkways for permission to use a clip from Ralph Chaplin. Much appreciation to the Butte Silverbow Archives and the University of Montana Archives and Special Collections for their assistance. We got some clutch audio engineering help from Chris Higgins. The Death in the West logo was designed by Portland graphic designer Johnny Ashcroft. We made this show DIY style, recording the field audio and interviews ourselves and laying down the voiceover tracks in basement studios in the middle of a pandemic and lately terrible wildfires. If you'd like to help us make more of Death in the West, you can donate via the website, deathinthewestpod.com. The details are there. To help get the word out, we'd love it if you'd rate and review the show at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. That stuff really helps. We're making this show on and around the traditional lands of the Salish, Ponderay, Kootenai, Shoshone, Blackfeet, Chinook, and Multnomah peoples, and many other native tribes. With deep respect, we acknowledge the indigenous people of the West. We hope we can do our small part to work for a better future in the lands we love. Wherever you are in the West or the world, thanks for listening. Stay safe and talk to you soon. No way out, Lord. So hard to get here and now I'm trapped Ratchet up the pace until someone breaks Sweep him up and replace him Do whatever it takes I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day the United Farm Workers, led by Cesar Chavez, signed their first union contract in California. It was a milestone victory for agricultural workers. Farm workers, often Mexican immigrants, had very strenuous working conditions. They worked long hours in the fields for extreme poverty wages. In the event that housing was provided, it was often unsanitary and of very poor quality. Filipino organizers sought to improve working conditions for agricultural workers. After the U.S. colonized the Philippines, many Filipinos were recruited to work on California farms. They began organizing as early as the 1930s, forming the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee reached prominence by the 1950s. At the same time, Mexican-American Cesar Chavez, along with Dolores Hayerta, founded the National Farm Workers Association to organize the Mexican workers who were increasingly dominating the labor force in the fields. The Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee went on strike against the grape growers near Delano, California. Their goal was to get a raise of 20 cents per hour. When the owners refused to negotiate, the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee reached out to Chavez. The two groups merged to create the United Farm Workers. The United Farm Workers Union was able to get the support of many in the public through a boycott of California grapes. While the boycott lasted some five years, grape growers received considerably negative press and suffered financially. As a result, on July 29, 1970, growers agreed to a contract with the United Farm Workers, the first such agreement in farm labor history. So the next time you're enjoying those tasty grapes, think about the workers and their brave efforts to unionize farm workers. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. What are you fighting for? The police put him in jail. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the Death in the West podcast. Check out the podcast at deathinthewestpod.com or search for Death in the West wherever you listen to podcasts. Our music today was Frank Little, a brand new song from the R.J. Phillips Band. You heard it first right here on Labor History Today. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time. Walking with Joe Hill, they could not buy him with their dollars. As one who would betray, he would not wear a cup of coffee. Was the promise